The following sermon was preached at Redeemer Church in Tumball, Texas. For more information, go to makingmuchofjesus.org. For those of you I have not met, my name is Richard. I'm the church planning resident here. Um, and so I'm a part of the team that Redeemer is sending out to Conroe to launch King's Church. Uh, I kind of have updated you guys a little bit as, as time goes on. And so the last few weeks, I said we were about to be meeting uh, weekly now, which we are. We're meeting every week. We're about to start tonight, actually. We're going to go through, uh, start going through the Gospel Center Life curriculum, which I know many of you guys have done here. So we're really excited about that. And we are excited ultimately about where things are coming or where things are going coming up in September, where we, we plan to launch finally. And, and I just want to say thank you guys for praying for me and for King's Church and just, just ask you guys to keep praying. Keep praying that, that our launch team would continue to grow and, and be, just be praying that we would be able to, to faithfully and effectively reach Conroe with the gospel. So please just, just keep praying for that. Yes, thank you. Uh, well, this morning... I have the, the privilege of, of preaching from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm, I'm continuing in the series that Jeff has been walking us through. So it's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and it's going to be verses 12 through 20. Uh, if you would, please, will you stand while I read these, read these words to us? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the, the privilege and, and the freedom that we have to, to come here and hear your word taught. To come here and, and celebrate together, to worship together, uh, to, to sit humbly under the word of God. And I just pray that, that your truth from this passage would be what we hear this morning. And that when we walk away from it, we would seek to, to live in holiness and practically live out what you call us to do. But more than anything, that we would be enamored with the truths of the gospel and that Christ would be magnified. I pray that that is what happens this morning. Father, we love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please have a seat. So, just from reading that, as you can see, today's passage is not necessarily the easiest of passages. Um, maybe this is the first time you've heard it. Maybe you've read it numerous times and you kind of think of what is Paul saying here? It sounds so foreign and so strange. Um, I think that might be why Jeff is out of town this week, why he decided to, to have me preach. Not really. But he's talking about all these different things. He's talking about our stomach. He's talking about our, our bodies being a temple. He's talking about sex and what our bodies are meant for and what our bodies are members of, who we belong to. It's, it's just a, a difficult thing to grasp what exactly he's getting at. 
And we're going to look at some of those things. But this is kind of a, a, a word of, of, of warning and caution when we approach a passage like that. We're going to look at some of those details. But as we go, I want us to fight this temptation to get low, so lost in some of the details of the passage that we actually miss Paul's main point. That we miss what it is primarily that Paul is wanting to communicate to us. And don't get me wrong, the details matter. What's going on in those verses matter. But you can't even begin to probably grasp what's going on in the details of a passage until you see what the big picture is of that passage and what Paul is trying to tell the Corinthians and, by extension, what Paul is trying to teach us. And it's actually a very encouraging thing that Paul's trying to teach us. And really, the, the, the thrust of this passage, what it's all about, comes in the last three verses, verses 18 through 20. Um, and you see there, I'm just going to point out a couple things first. Uh, Paul actually starts verse 18 with a very serious word of warning for us. The first part of verse 18, he says, flee from sexual immorality. So he's warning us of something. This is, in fact, the reason, the, the, what was going on in the Corinthian church, why Paul had to write this section. That's why he starts there in verse 18 with that. But this word of warning for us actually comes in the context of a beautiful description of who we are, that we are the Lord's bought with a price. We saw that in verse 20. You know, uh, one of the speed reading techniques is when you want to capture the main idea of a chapter, you read the first paragraph and the last paragraph of the chapter, and you kind of get the gist of what the author's saying. Well, these two verses, the last two verses, 19 and 20, they're kind of like those two paragraphs for what the book of Corinthians is about. This is the thrust of what Paul is saying. It's the idea behind this passage. It's the idea behind all of what's happening in chapter 5 and all of what's happening in chapter 6. And it really makes, makes up a core truth of what it means to be a Christian. And that truth is that you are not your own, but belong to Jesus. That's the truth that Paul is trying to get across. And so in verse 18, you have Paul issuing this command that addresses the sexual morality in Corinth. That's, again, that's his reason for writing. And then in verses 19 and 20, he has this hope of the gospel that tells you why this command matters and how, how obedience is even possible to this command. It's gospel doctrine and gospel culture. You've heard Jeff say it. You've heard Ray Ortland say it. And it's so true. You have the wonderful reality of the gospel in our lives and that the practical changes that that produces in our lives. And so because of that, and because I want to focus on, on how Paul is addressing this passage in light of those three verses, um, I want to use them, 18 through 20, as kind of our jumping off point for the passage. That's how we're going to get to what Paul is saying here, which means um, I'm going to be jumping around a little bit in the passage. I'll, I'll try to be clear where I am, but I want to jump around a little bit so that we're always seeing what Paul is saying here in light of his main point. And with that in mind, there's then two things that I want to point out. I want to point out Paul's command in verse 18. We'll talk a little bit about why he's doing that. I think it's important for us to grasp. Um, that's where a lot of the, the difficult things to talk about are found, but that's important for us to grasp. And then I want to see Paul's reminder in verses 19 through 20. And this is the reminder of the hope of the gospel. That's what Paul's doing here. So let's start in verse 18 with Paul's command for the Corinthians to flee from sexual immorality. You see that in the very first part of the verse. And when I, when I read this verse, when I read these words, flee from sexual immorality, I always think and think of, of Gandalf fighting the Balrog in the mines of Moria. You know, when he's hanging onto the stone bridge and he looks off to the rest of the fellowship and he says, fly, you fools. It's such an amazing moment in that story that really captures the heart of what it means to be fleeing from danger. And I actually think the urgency that you feel in that moment is the urgency that we're actually intended to feel when we read Paul's words here, to flee from sexual immorality. This word, this word flee that he's using here, uh, it, 
it's supposed to convey a sense of importance and a sense of immediacy for its readers, for his readers, for us. It's, and it actually means to, to be fleeing. Right now, be fleeing. That's what Paul's saying. He's like, get away from it. Run from it. That's Paul's point. When I, when I was looking into the way this word was used, um, interestingly enough, it was multiple times used to describe the, what you're supposed to do when you see a venomous snake. Flee. That is, flee from danger. I mean, you're not going to hang around. You're going to get away. And so Paul is trying to capture our attention with the importance of his exhortation here. And what does he say flee from? So we flee, but it says we're fleeing from sexual morality in this passage. It's the word porneia. He uses this word because it covers a, a broad range of sexual sins. That's why Paul uses this. He's saying all of it, flee from it. It's just a blanket term. And he's, he's using it because of the issue that they're in and the issue that the Corinthians are facing and because it covers so much ground. And he's having a tr- problem getting the Corinthians to grasp this truth, grasp the truth of who they are. And we've already seen from Jeff, uh, I think two weeks ago now, uh, when he was preaching from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul was having to continually address these subjects with them. He was, in that passage, he was addressing the issue of incest with them. They're allowing and excusing of that sin. So these, the, the, the sexual immorality was a problem for Corinth. So Paul's continually having to address it. And he's addressing it here again in chapter 6. You see this in, in uh, verse 16 specifically, when Paul's actually kind of showing that he's having to deal with a very particular cultural way in which the sin of sexual immorality manifested itself in Corinth. Uh, he says in verse 16, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. You see, in Corinth, temple prostitution was a common habit among the people, out of worship and out of celebration. And so it might be that some of the Corinthians are actually having a, a problem and a struggle with breaking free from their old way of life and their old behavior. And so Paul's trying to address that with them. And as, as I was thinking about this, that, that idea seems really distant to us. That type of in- intimacy attached to the worship of a deity. But I think it actually is the same in our culture. It's just not quite as obvious. You see, when we when we engage in this type of in- intimacy and, and sexual morality, however it manifests itself in our own lives, there is worship going on. It's just the worship of self. It's the worship of, of self-autonomy. See, we're told in our culture, uh, maybe with these exact phrases or at least these ideas, we're told that whatever makes you happy, do it. Whatever feels right is right, so do it. To be yourself. And we live in a world that's so, so infatuated by sex that these slogans, these ideas about if it feels right, do it, they most commonly find their expression in the most intimate of ways. That's the world we live in. It was, I mean, there's lots of similarities between our world and the first century world that Paul writes to. I mean, this, these ideas are the truth behind the effort to, to redefine marriage. It's the, the truth behind why people don't want to get married at all anymore or why marriages end in adultery. See, sexual immorality is present in our world and it's present in our lives because we have believed the lie that what we do with our bodies doesn't matter as long as it brings you happiness. It doesn't matter what you do with your body or with your life as long as it brings you happiness. Sometimes we believe that lie. We've taken Christ and the gospel out of the picture when it comes to our understanding of sex. We see, our sexuality is actually meant to be used in a way that God intends, in a way that brings God glory. It's a good thing that we're supposed to enjoy. That's what Scripture teaches us. But sin, as it often does, can distort that good thing. 
And that's why in verse 16 that I just reread for you, Paul quote, quotes Genesis 2.24. The two shall become one flesh. And the, the Genesis passage, in the original writing of that passage, uh, we're looking at the, the wonderful picture of the husband and wife marriage relationship and how beautiful it is and how God intended it and how God designed it and how God created it. Paul's saying that's the design. Of our, of our sexual lives. And he's pointing out the incongruity of taking what God made for marriage to be enjoyed in marriage for God's glory and instead using it for our own pleasure in a way that denies God's intentions, in a way that denies who we are in Christ. As the, the term uh, porneia implies, I, I defined that with its broad range, is that sexual immorality manifests itself differently for different people. It's not always the same. It may be an addiction to pornography. It may be to sex outside the parameters of marriage or something that maybe only you're aware of. Whatever it might be, books, movies, places that become a struggle for you, that you know. And you see, acting on our sexual desires in a sinful way denies the purpose for which God made them. And as Christians, it almost becomes this, this functional denial of who we are in Christ. That's why Paul's warning here is so adamant to flee. Let's not miss the importance of what he's saying here. Let us not be blind to the ways that sexual sin is prominent in our lives and the way that it affects us individually. Let's be honest with ourselves. You see, the call to flee sexual immorality is a call to be aware of how it manifests itself in your life and then run from it. I wonder if when, when Paul was writing this, I wonder if he had the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife in mind. From Genesis 39, I'll, I'll, you don't have to go there. But Joseph finds himself in, in favor with a high-ranking Egyptian officer. So he's often in Pharaoh, or Potiphar's house. And he finds himself being advanced on by Potiphar's wife. And he's continually rejecting these advances. At one point, we read that she's got a hold of his garments. And it says that he fled and got out of the house. He goes so fast out of the house that part of his garment is left in her hand. It reminds me of like a, a, one of those slapstick cartoons where he runs with a puff of smoke and his clothes are just there. But it's a good illustration of what Paul's talking about here. Take sin, especially sin in this area, seriously enough to get away from it. Get away quickly. It's dangerous. That's his point. It's dangerous because it's cunning and it's tempting. So we flee, we run, we get away. We make no allowance for it in our life. When we feel the pulls of sin in this way, we do whatever we can to escape its grasp. That's Paul's point. I feel like we, can, we really want to think about what he means here, why he's saying this. Now, there are a, a myriad of individual things that you can do in your own life uh, to, fight, to fight these temptations in whatever way they tempt you. And you should do whatever you can. I feel comfortable saying that we can get radical about fighting this sin in our life. It's worth it. It's worth it. But that's not where we want to end this discussion. If we end this discussion solely on talking about the sin of sexual immorality and Paul's command to flee the sin of sexual immorality, it's not going to do us any good. Because I can tell you all day long to flee sexual immorality, but unless you find your hope and the power to do so in the gospel, you will have no power to actually do it. See, the warning to flee is not intended to heap guilt upon us for when we fail, it's a warning intended to remind us of who we already are. It's a reminder to tell us that we are in Christ and in Christ we can flee. And so that's what I want us to do next. I want us to move from what Paul has commanded in this passage, which is the reason he wrote the passage, what he's addressing in Corinth. And I want us to see Paul's reminder 
his hope of the gospel. And that's in verses 19 through 20. Let me, let me just read these two verses again. He says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And this is Paul, where Paul gets to the heart of what it is he's trying to say to them. He wants to remind them what is already true of them. Paul is speaking to believers who are giving in to the temptations in their lives and thus making excuses for sin. And so Paul is writing to help them fight the sin in their lives. You remember Jeff last week told us the, the wonderful gospel truth that is found in the words, and such were some of you. Verse 11 of this chapter. See, the gospel declares that our previous sin does not define our current identity. Jesus does. We are justified. That's the truth of the gospel. That's the hope Paul wants the Corinthians to understand. That is what produces change in their lives. And although that's true, the Corinthians are still struggling. We still struggle. And so Paul must continually remind them, and Paul must continually remind us of the truth of the gospel. A reminder of who we are and how that actually practically every day affects our lives. See, fighting sin in our lives is not dependent upon how strong we are, but it's how dependent upon the gospel we are. And so to that aim, I want us to see in this passage Paul's definition of the gospel. Two word pictures he uses. That of the temple and that of being bought. So let's look at this idea of the, of the temple first. You find this in verse 19. When he says, or do you not know that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit? Uh, this is the, the fifth time Paul's used this phrase, or do you not know, in chapter 6. The idea is, do you not remember because you should. I've told you. That's Paul's point. I've told you this. Why don't you remember? Do you not know, do you not remember the truths of the gospel in your life? That they've been applied to you directly, personally. That your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul's saying that's a part of what it means to believe the gospel. A part of what it means to have the gospel applied to your life is the belief, the knowledge that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The idea is that what we know about the gospel actually affects who we are in the everyday details of our life. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is one of those statements where I think maybe its importance can be somewhat difficult to grasp. I'm not sure how, how often it is that we really, really grasp what it means to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. Or maybe we do, we do, we understand it, but it's hard to see how that, how that practices itself or plays itself out every day. But it's a gospel truth. It's a gospel truth that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You see, being a Christian does not simply mean that we have this new list of do's and don'ts that we follow, but it means that we are united to God in a significant light-altering way, life-altering way. We're united to God. So when we say we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, we're talking about our union with Christ. We're talking about how united by faith to Christ we are. And so what is the significance for us to be the temple of the Holy Spirit? What, what, what does that mean? What's the significance of that? And how does knowledge of that, being the temple of the Holy Spirit, actually affect the way we live our lives? Which, again, is the reason Paul's writing. Well, let me answer that first question. What does being the temple of the Holy Spirit have to do with the gospel? How does it remind us of the gospel? Well, the first thing is that it tells us that we are quite literally the dwelling place of God. The temp being the temple of the Holy Spirit means we are the dwelling place of God. We are, individually, our bodies. This imagery actually recalls themes from the Old Testament, the tabernacle and the temple. The tabernacle was God's dwelling place with the Israelites as they wandered through the wilderness. And the temple was God's dwelling place with the Israelites after they had settled in the land of Canaan. 
The tabernacle in the book of Exodus was called the tent of meeting because it was the meeting place between God and man. It's where we met. It's where God dwelled. It's where God's presence was known. His presence was felt. And you can follow this theme of, of the temple, the dwelling place of God, all the way throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament where you see that the very body of individual believers in Christ now becomes the dwelling place of God. And what Paul is saying here is that you, as believers in Christ, those who have seen the forgiveness of your sins and the death and resurrection of Jesus, you're the tabernacle. You're where God dwells. You're united to Christ. You belong to him, united. This is exactly what Jesus promised to us in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 14. You can turn there if you want, but I'll read it for you. Chapter 14, verses 15 through 17. He says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, he's talking about the Spirit, to be with you forever. It's eternal. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So Jesus promised that this day was coming. He told us it was coming. He said, for those of you who know Christ, those of you who know God, through faith in Christ's finished work, those of you who know God, the Spirit of God will dwell within you. And he said this, not just to individual Christians, but this was true as of the corporate body of believers as a whole. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he said this, verses 16 through 17, when he says, do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So we have this spirit of God that's come to indwell individual believers, who are now the temple of God, who make up the, the body of Christ, which is now the temple of God, where Christ's presence rests, where he dwells. This means that we are united to God, united to Christ in a life-altering way means that, that sin has no lasting effect on us anymore, for we've been forgiven. And this blessing is not just for anyone. This is a truth that belongs uniquely to those who have found salvation through the faith in the Son of God. This is for those who have believed in the power of the gospel to unite us to God. And so the idea that behind the pictures that Paul's painting here is that of our union with Jesus, a union that now becomes the focus of our identity. See, it's not our sin that defines us anymore in Christ. It's our union with Christ that defines us. And that is a fundamental gospel truth. So you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are united to Christ, and therefore you are a child of God and an heir of the universe. That's your hope. That's your promise in the gospel. Alistair Begg calls this truth of being the temple of the Holy Spirit, being united to Christ, he calls it the defining fact of the believer's existence. I think he's right. And so it is of great significance that we are united to Jesus, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Because it declares to us the gospel realities and the eternal promises that are ours, that are ours in Jesus, promises that are had through faith. But where do we go from there? If, if being the temple of the Holy Spirit is a gospel reality because it teaches us that we are united to Jesus, that we are the dwelling place of God, that we have access to him, how does that change and change us and work itself out practically in our life? Well, to answer that, we have to kind of see why Paul decided to use these words, why he decided to define our, our glorious inheritance in this way. 
And as we've discussed, Paul's addressing this issue of, of, of sexual morality with the Corinthians and their brazen sexual immorality. And so Paul decides in reminding them of the gospel to explain to them the implications of their life because of the gospel. So I want you to look at, at verse 15 through 17 one more time. It says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And that's important. It says, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. And here's verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Paul makes the points that our bodies are actual members of Christ. We're one spirit with Jesus. And thus here is his point in all of this. Here's where the gospel actually demonstrates its practicality for the way the Corinthians were struggling. It is unthinkable, this is what Paul, the connection Paul's making, it's unthinkable to join what is of Christ's body to sin. That's Paul's point. And now, that's a, that's a, weighty, a weighty truth to think about, that we are members of Christ, temples of the Holy Spirit. And Paul's saying it's unthinkable to join that union with sin. And Paul's use of this imagery here actually intends to, to, to carry this idea of, of taking Jesus with us into our sin. That's Paul's point. It's why at the end of verse 15, he asks this hypothetical question, should this be? And he answers, never, never. See, the gospel promises us a wonderful blessing in our union with Christ, but it anticipates a very real responsibility to use our bodies and our lives in a way that brings glory to God. He's trying to teach that to the Corinthians here. We need to know that. Like many theologies of the body from, from the ancient world or even our own, we don't view it as immaterial. It matters to God because it belongs to God. So it matters what we do with it. So being the temple of God reminds us that this, the temple is kind of the, the, the focal point to the epicenter of God's activity. And in Christ, we are that temple. And as the temple of the Holy Spirit, we see the importance of living all of our lives for the glory of God. Fighting sin, preaching Christ, and dwelling on the grace that is in Christ. The gospel reality of our bodies as the temple of the Spirit works to correct this incongruity of sexual immorality, however it manifests itself. We see how it manifests itself for them, but it's however it manifests itself. And so I do urge you, I think that's one thing we can take away from this passage is to evaluate ourselves in this area. But where you find need for growth, and this is, this is key, this is important. Paul has a command, flee from sexual morality. So we can, evaluate, we can evaluate how we're living there, how we're doing. But this is key. Where you find any need for growth in your life, any area of struggle that you need to overcome, don't think you have the power to do it alone. Ask yourself, if you are believing the gospel truth of your union with Christ and the glorious reality that you are the temple of God, and it's letting those free blessings, what you are in Jesus, it's letting those free blessings that are yours by faith be what produces change. It's not how, how, how serious you can be tomorrow. It's not how, how good you can be in your own efforts tomorrow. It's not pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. It's not that. It's trusting and relying in the power of the gospel for change. If you don't know where to start, just pray. Ask that God would help you be overwhelmed by the weight of the reality of the gospel in your life and what it means. 
There's one more word picture that Paul uses here. We're the temple of God, which means we're united to Christ. But he also says that we're bought. Verse 20. So look at that. It starts really at the very end of verse 19 when he says, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And the image that Paul is using here is that of a, of a slave market. You were bought. Someone else owns you. They bought you. Someone else owns you, and that includes the divine prerogative to issue commands to us. That doesn't, I mean, if you're a believer, you trust Christ, but that still doesn't necessarily sound that great. Someone else owns us. And it, di- it directly rubs against the, the current theme of our culture. I mean, if we believe anything as Americans, it's that we are our own. And so Paul, what Paul is saying here is, is very countercultural for us. Paul is saying that we don't have the freedom to do whatever we want to ourselves or for ourselves. Rather, looking at the ver- end of verse 20, rather what we must do in light of our belonging to Christ is glorify God with our bodies, our lives, every bit of us. And this is practical. I mean, this is where theology operates on the street level. Because the freedom to do whatever we want with our bodies, as we said, is an important thing for many of us. And it infiltrates our thinking. We're all affected by this. It's, I, it's the idea that's prominent in many cultural discussions we have in the world right now, from all stemming from the sexual revolution, whether it be the widespread use and acceptance of pornography, flexibility of gender, abortion, euthanasia, all of these issues stem from this idea that we are our own. I am my own. I make my own decisions. I am autonomous. God says that's not the case. You are mine. The truth is that this this is hard for us to grasp, but we must instead seek to glorify God with our bodies. And it has many implications, even kind of on the, the, the personal level. You know, whether what it is, what we think about. What are we thinking about? What are we looking at? What are we putting into our mouths? All of these things matter when we see who we are in Christ. And although as Christians we, we know this and we assent to this, we, we say we believe it, it can actually be hard for us to practice in the everyday pattern of life. But I want us to do the same thing we did with the first picture. So with the first picture we said, what does it say about the gospel and how does that affect our lives practically? So let's do that with this, this idea that we are bought with a price. What does that say about the gospel And how does that kind of affect our lives practically? Let's do that. Let's ask first, what does it say about the gospel? And the truth is that I can think of no greater truth than the fact that I belong to Jesus. And that's what Paul means when he says, you are not your own, but you've been bought with a price. He's talking about redemption. Talking about the core element of the gospel. The truth of those who due to sin are alienated from God is that in Christ, through faith, by grace, we're saved. It's redemption. And it's a bedrock idea of Scripture. It's all throughout the pages of Scripture, this idea of redemption. It's a key element of the Bible story because Jesus is key to the Bible story, and redemption is found in Christ alone, His work on the cross for us. You see this idea of redemption coming from all the way back in the Garden of Eden when God made things perfect, but sin, sin destroyed what was there. Sin caused the fall. But even right then in the fall, Genesis 3, there's the promise of redemption, God says in Genesis 3, he's he's pronouncing his curse on the serpent for his role in the fall. And he says this. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between Satan and humankind, and between your offspring and her offspring, Jesus. He shall bruise your head 
and you shall bruise his heel. He's saying that Jesus' foot's going to come down on top of your skull, might give him a little bruise, but your skull is going to get crushed. That's what he's saying. Jesus is the serpent crusher in that passage. It's the, the very beginning, the promise of redemption through Christ. Starts after the fall that Jesus is coming to put right what sin destroyed. He will right all wrongs and will reconcile sinners to God through his shed blood, through faith in him. Jesus will restore the kingdom of God through his work on the cross and will thus make possible redemption for all sinners through faith in him. What a wonderful promise that is. It's a reality. But see, here's the thing. It says we're bought. It's redemption. We're redeemed. Christ gives us redemption. But we're bought with a price. Or with the price it costs. It's not that price isn't ours. We don't pay for it. It's free. Grace is free through faith in Christ. Christ paid the price. You see this in Ephesians 1, verses 7 and 8. It's just a, a wonderful description of it. Of what he did here. And it says, In him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins for our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. We have redemption through his blood. This redemption, this being bought, this purchase is only possible by the death of Jesus. His body broken for us, his blood shed for us, washed clean from our sin. That's where redemption comes from. It cost him his life. That's the price. You see, there's no greater truth to know that even though you didn't deserve it, and precisely because you can't earn it, Jesus shed his blood on the cross, bearing the full weight of God's wrath for your sin, died, three days later raised again, raised again for you. It's wonderful news. It's wonderful news for those of you who don't believe in Christ right now, because it's free. You put your faith in Christ this moment for the forgiveness of your sins. It's knowing and recognizing that you are a sinner and that just by believing that Christ died for your sins, that his blood was shed to forgive you for your sins, that is how we believe that salvation is accomplished. You can believe it right now. But it's true for believers too. The gospel is not just for when we're saved, it's for the whole of life. The gospel reality is a daily reminder of who we are, that we are not our own because we are redeemed. We're united to Christ as the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we are redeemed, we are bought, we are purchased. It's the essence of the gospel that Paul is communicating here in this passage. And I, I love this quote, and uh, I've, I've noticed that I think every time I'm up here, I read a Spurgeon quote, so we'll keep the trend going. And he says this about redemption. He says, remember too, that this fact, your redemption, is the most important one in all your history. That you were redeemed with a price is the greatest event in your biography. Even your birth, what was it unless a second birth had been yours? Your connection with Calvary is the most important thing about you. And if it be the most important thing in the world to you, that you were bought with a price, let it exercise the most prominent influence over your entire life. And this is where he kind of betrays his geographical location here. He says, be a man, be an Englishman, say be, a, be an American, but be most of all, be Christ's man, a citizen, a friend, a philanthropist, a patriot, all of these you may be, but be most of all, a saint redeemed by blood. 
I think he's right. And so I urge you and I urge all of us to never forget our redemption and that it's precisely for that reason that we belong to Jesus and that we live our lives for the glory of God. And so that's the hope of the gospel that he's singing. When you're bought with a price, he's talking about redemption. That's the gospel. That's what he wants to remind them of because that's where the hope is. That's where freedom from sin is. And so let's look at how he kind of works this out practically. He wants them to remember that they're redeemed and see how that affects the, the way they're living their lives, the reason for Paul, why Paul wrote this passage. To see that, I want us to look at verses 12 through 14 again. So I'll jump around a little bit. So let's go back to these verses. Let me read this one more time for you. Starting in verse 12, he says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord up and will also raise us up by his power. Reminds of the song we just, verse 14, I will rise. I will rise as the Lord is raised. What does it mean practically that we are not our own? How is this demonstrated in the lives of the Corinthians? What's Paul trying to communicate to him? I've mentioned, we've talked about this already, that the, the Corinthian problem was their sexual morality that they were facing, and Paul's warning them to flee from it. But the most fundamental reason for their error was that they had forgotten the truth of the gospel. They had forgotten that they belonged to Jesus. They had forgotten that they were redeemed and purchased. They weren't letting those truths actually affect who they are and how they think and what they do. They weren't believing the gospel with their lives. And this is typically always the case. Whenever there's areas of sin in our life that we're struggling with or having a hard time fighting, it's usually caused by something that we aren't believing that's true about the gospel. We aren't believing the gospel's power over the sin in our life in that area. So they were not believing what the gospel says about their redemption, that they belong to Jesus, body and spirit. Now you might notice in verses 12 and 13 there, there's a few phrases in quotation marks. All things are lawful for me, says twice. And in verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Now, what's Paul saying here? Why are these in quotes? Well, the reason these are in quotes is because these are actually the things that the Corinthians were saying. The Corinthians were using these slogans to justify their behavior. And so Paul's quoting them and explaining where they're missing the point. See, they would do whatever they wanted, including the sin that Paul is addressing in this passage, and they would just say, well, all things are lawful for me in Christ. Just as our stomachs are meant for food and food are meant for the stomach, so just as, just as eating is natural, pleasing the body is natural. So we can do it. We can fulfill whatever desire we have. That's their argument. And so Paul's quoting their own argument, the phrases that they're using to support their own argument. So they had this idea that they were connected with Christ spiritually, but that their body was just this natural organism there to keep them alive. And so it didn't really matter what we did with the body. That's just things we got to do. The spiritual connection with Christ, that's what matters. And Paul's correcting it as they say, no, all of who you are, your spirit, your body, everything about you belongs to Jesus. So you can see why Paul's so adamant and serious in this passage. And so he's using these phrases and he's turning around and pointing out the errors and how they don't actually reflect the reality of one who belongs to Jesus. And the basic idea in these verses is that in your freedom in Christ, which is through your redemption, it is a freedom not to yourself, not to live for yourself and do as you please, but it is actually a freedom to live for the glory of God because you're not your own. That's what Paul's saying. The Corinthians likely remembered a lot of what Paul had said. Paul talks a lot about grace. And you know what? Paul talks a lot about freedom in Christ. This is the thing. You'll notice that when they say all things are lawful for me, 
Paul doesn't correct them. He doesn't say that's a wrong statement. He doesn't say, well, no, no, not, not all things are lawful for you. No, he lets the statement stand, and he just wants to help them understand how it applies. That's what he's doing. Because they know that in Galatians 5, Paul's already said, for freedom Christ has set us free, and we've been called to freedom. Or that Romans 8.1 says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. They know these truths, the freeness of the gospel. You see, a Christian can commit no sin that isn't already covered by the grace of God. No sin can forfeit our salvation. See, God is the highest court, and he has declared us as believers in Christ righteous. That's what defines us. And it is freeing. But they've lost sight of the fact that this freedom doesn't suddenly then become a freedom for yourself, but it becomes a freedom for the glory of Jesus. Paul, I mean, they missed evidently in Galatians 5, and they didn't have Galatians 5, but when Paul says, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So they had taken the freedom that they had in Christ and used it as a license to do whatever it is they wanted to do. And Paul says that you are misunderstanding what it means to be free in Christ, to be free in the gospel. It's not directed at you, it's directed at God. Which is why he says in verse 12 that all things are lawful for me, but they're not all helpful. So not everything is helpful for you. And this is key. You won't be enslaved by anything. He says that in verse 12. He's like, yes, you are free in Christ. But that's a freedom from being enslaved by anything, not to be enslaved. Isn't it interesting how when declaring our freedom in Christ, we actually find ourselves enslaved to the very things we claim to be doing in the name of freedom? And this phrase, it's, it's a little bit more difficult to see in English. I love the way, the way Edwards translated it, verse, the end of verse 12 there. He says, you could say it like this. All things are in my power, but nothing will overpower me. It's the idea that all things are within my liberty in Christ, but I will not let anything take liberty with me. This is exactly what had happened to the Corinthians. And so in verse 13, he tells them that your body is not meant for sexual immorality, which means it's not meant for yourself, for your own pleasure, but your body is for the Lord, to live for his glory and the Lord for the body, which means he cares what we do with our lives. And as Paul always does, verse 14 reminds them of the power of the gospel. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. He never loses sight of the gospel whenever he's talking. Because outside of heaven, the, the highest density of God's power is found in the gospel. That's what Paul wants to remind them of. Jesus gave his life for yours. He was raised, so we shall be raised. So what we do with our lives matter. That's Paul's point. And so I just want to encourage all of us to, to remind ourselves of the, day, the gospel daily, every day. It's freeing, and it frees us to live for the glory of Christ, in light of the complete and total forgiveness of our sins in Christ. For Paul, the gospel and its implications was what the Corinthians needed to hear, and it's the same for us as what we need to hear over and over and over again. It's what frees us from the enslavement to sin. It's what frees us to live our lives for the glory of God. It's what frees us to be overwhelmed by God's grace and declare it to the world. See, we need the power of the gospel to truly live as though we are not our own, but belong to Jesus. And it's free. You don't have to earn it. All you have to do is believe it. Trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and for freedom from them. And so I just, I just want to leave us just summing up the thing that Paul sought to give to the Corinthians. That the gospel is our joy. It is our hope. It is our comfort. It is our confidence. It is our strength. It is our power. That's what Paul wanted them to see. 
See, sin is not defeating in our lives because Jesus has defeated sin. Sin is not overpowering in our lives because we belong to the power of Christ, with the power of the gospel. And so let's be a people who are enamored with the worth of Jesus and confident that we don't belong to ourselves. And how scary would that be if we belong to ourselves? We don't belong to ourselves, but we belong to Jesus. We belong to the sovereign Lord of the universe who has the power to keep us and will keep us through the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God, the power to keep us until the glorious day of Christ's return when we live for an eternity with him, worshiping and praising him for his grace and for his gospel and for his work in our life. Let's pray. If you're serving communion, make your way to the front, please. Father, we thank you so much for for what you have done for us. We thank you that you are are good and that you are faithful and that you are gracious. We thank you that you have, even when you're reminding us for for any way in which we, we, we sin or we fail, that even in those moments, you are reminding us of the hope of the gospel. That you are reminding us of who we are in Jesus. That you are reminding us that the gospel And thus Christ is the most important thing in our life. And I pray that we would never lose sight of that. And that would be the truth of who Jesus is and what he means to us personally. That that would be the truth that guides how we live our lives. So Father, we pray this in the name of Jesus, our King and our Savior. Amen.